Brian and Charlie were a couple of average, hard-working gangsters. Hit the dick when you're dead! You shot Louis, you twerp! Who'd had enough. I really hate this bank job. No insurance? No job security. You want to work for somebody else? No. No. You know what we ought to do? We steal the money for ourselves. An anemic romp dispiritingly akin to the obsolete comedies The Pythons pushed aside, Ira Robbins, Entertainment Weekly. It makes everyone in the audience feel a rascally eight years old, the age at which whoopee cushions, when they work, seem the greatest invention since firecrackers. Vincent Canby, New York Times. Why do filmmakers so often insist that nuns are funny? I'll bet there are some psychological reasons buried around here somewhere. Roger Ebert. That's right, it's 1990s Nuns on the Run. Hello and welcome to Britcom Goes to the Movies. This is a podcast where we watch a British comedy that makes a jump from the small screen to the big screen and decide, was it worth it? And joining me this week is a man who's here to cleanse himself of genocide and apply for readmission to the human race. It's Rob Heath. And his department is now responsible for supplying all the government's computerised bugging equipment. Presumably, this makes him the government's chief bugger. It's Guy Walker. Very good. (laughs) We're obviously doing Yes Minister quotes there. We've been very good. Well, what's this now? Episode 8, and we've never picked the same quotes. I was worried this week that I might. Well, uh, I'll tell you the reason I was worried is because I very lazily not kind of search beyond BBC iPlayer and there's only four episodes on BBC iPlayer. So I thought we might be rewatching the same episodes, uh, but I think you've got them all on DVD, right? Yeah. So my dad's got the entire collection. So he's lent me, uh, lent me the DVD. So I've been kind of going through them and picking some quotes out. Yes, uh, Guy. So let's, uh, let's start with the facts and stats, shall we? From Nuns on the Run, 1990. Yeah, let's go for it. So, Nuns on the Run was released on the 4th of May, 1990. It peaked at number two in the UK box office. Behind which film? In 1990? Yeah. Uh, I think I looked it up. Um, oh, Is it something awful? Or is it... Hang on. It depends. Dances with Wolves? No. The Craze. Of course, yeah. No, I did. I did look it up, and I do... Because what's funny about both of those being one and two in the UK box office is that I kind of remember both of them for being most successful on on like home video. Mm. And in fact, I think until doing that bit of research, I thought that The Craze was a TV film or a straight-to-video film. Ah, But actually, it did really well, didn't it? Yeah, it was a massive hit, which kind of a bit surprising to say you've just got the Kemp brothers obviously known for other things, well, Spandau Ballet, doing a Mm. gangster movie. In the US, it got to number 11 and came out the same week as Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, which has obviously got a link to another director. Yeah, we've been talking about that in our Mike Bassett episode, haven't we? Yeah, Steve Barron. It was was fairly successful in the US, wasn't it, Nuns on the Runner, which I think is, you know, kind of, well, as as we'll hear later on, was good news for... The two main stars, I mean, obviously, Eric Idle was already a big star, but uh, particularly Robbie Coltrane and our writer-director. 
Yeah, definitely. So the film was a hit, making $10 million in the USA and $3.2 million at the UK box office. came out in America on a limited release, but it soon snowballed after the numbers it was making. I think it made over half a million dollars in its first weekend, so it opened up at more screenings. It's got a 42% on Rotten Tomatoes and a 6.0 on IMDb. So, have you got some Britcom connections for us? I have, yeah. So now, when we did Michael Rimmer, we did, uh, I mentioned the fact that there's going to be a few films where kind of people's names, and their, their, their CVs precede them. And obviously, Eric Idle is one of those people, but I, I do just want to do a bit of a kind of run-through of his CV because it's, it's taken some interesting turns for a start. Eric Idle was in four episodes of At Last, the 1948 show a sketch show called Do Not Adjust Your Set in the late 60s with some of the Pythons and David Jason, Neil Innes, who obviously he'd go on to work with later. Of course, Monty Python's Flying Circus and Associated Films, Rutland Weekend Television, including Ruttles All You Need Is Cash, which is a TV film, so under our strict rules guy won't get covered. Uh, by the time Python had conquered the US, he did a lot across the pond, so he did one episode of Laverne and Shirley, a very famous uh, US sitcom, he was in National Lampoon's European Vacation, which I don't remember where they go to London, don't they? So Yeah, maybe. So I, I don't remember that one as well. It's, yeah, so maybe. Uh, the famous 1980s Transformers movie with Orson Welles. Uh, After Man's on the Run, One Foot in the Grave, for which he famously sung the theme tune. Uh, an Alan Smithy film, Burn Hollywood Burn, which is a, a documentary I'm desperate to see. So Alan Smithy is like the... Um, uh, the pseudonym that uh, directors who don't want to be associated with with a film after it's made right. had to use by kind of unwritten Hollywood law. Uh, okay. um, and then that film became quite meta because the person who made the Alan Smithy film then wanted to disassociate themselves from it and called it an Alan Smithy film. South Park, Bigger, Longer and Uncuts, which I, I'd forgotten about, but obviously he is... Uh, the professor, isn't he? The, prof- yeah. the V-chip professor. Big floppy donkey dick. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he's in loads of kids in Disney's uh, Disney animated TV, including Recess, Mickey Mouse. He's in 102 Dalmatians, uh, the, the live action sequel. And he's in the movie Absolutely Everything with Simon Pegg, which I've not said. Have you seen that? I've not seen that. I was going to watch it. I think it got quite bad reviews. So It, it didn't look great, so no. yeah, I avoided that. Was that a Terry Jones? I think that was a Terry Jones film, what the Terry Jones' mm-hmm. last directorial no. um, film. Yeah, that would the, make sense as to why he was in it then. Yeah, exactly. Was that the one where I think he can hear his dog talk and Robin Williams is a t- talking dog? And We might have to do it for the pod, with it being Terry Jones' last film and Simon Pegg and... Yeah, Maybe it's one we could look at. Let's stick it in. Mm. Uh, let's move on to Robbie Coltrane. One of his first films was Flash Gordon, in which he played a small part. Uh, his comedy started with one episode of Keep It in the Family. He was in Rick Mail's The Man Behind the Green Door. Have you seen that? No, I've not seen that. I'll have to look it no, up. No, I've not heard of it. Uh, Sci-Fi Fast Britannia Hospital with Leonard Brossiter. Mm. Uh, one late episode of Are You Being Served? And cult favourite Kroll. And then he really started to get noticed in the 80s, uh, starting with this sketch show called Kick Up the 80s, which he also was one of the writers for. Variety show called Alfresco with Ben Elton and Emma Thompson and Fry and Laurie. Um, uh, Three episodes of The Young Ones, 
of course. Mm. A sketch show called Laugh, I Nearly Paid My License Fee. <laughs> I'd love to find this. John Sessions is in that as well. Oh, cool. So it sounds like it might be good. Yeah. Uh, he's also in European Vacation. 19 episodes of Comic Strip Presents, perhaps most famously Five Go Mad in Dorset, in which he's uh, very funny. Yeah. Uh, the Supergrass, that's on our list, isn't it? Mm. Uh, British classic films of the 80s, Absolute Beginners and Mona Lisa. He was Dr. Samuel Johnson in Blackadder III and the Spirit of Christmas Festive Special. He was in both French and Saunders and The Lenny Henry Show, a film that Carl Reiner directed called Burt Rigby, You're a Fool. After Nuns on the Run, most famously uh, Cracker on TV. Uh, it wouldn't be my research without mentioning that he plays Valentin Zukowski in both GoldenEye and The World is Not Enough, uh, wonderfully, I might add. A few f- Hollywood films in the late 90s, early noughties, um, including From Hell, which is a kind of biopic about Jack the Ripper, which... My connection, uh, my dad is also in. <laughs> of course. And then, obviously, for anyone younger than us, he's most famous, of course, as Hagrid in Harry Potter. Mm. Two episodes of Lead Balloon, which lots of people hate, but I quite like. I thought that Lead Balloon was okay. I think because it came out at a similar time to like Kirby Enthusiasm, it was Jack D playing a version of himself that people kind of took against it, but I quite liked Lead Balloon. Yeah, I, I, it always really made me laugh. He's in the reboot of Yes, Prime Minister, which is obviously significant for this episode. And before he died, he was in the much-lauded National Treasure, which I didn't see. Did you see that? No, which was National Treasure? Well, it's it's him and Julie Walters, and he's like a, a revered uh, TV presenter who faces um, allegations of paedophilia. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was... Um, very, very, very good reviews, but I never mm. saw it. So Camille Kaduri, who plays Faith, before Nuns on the Run, she was in uh, A Prayer for the Dying with Bob Hoskins, but then Nuns on the Run was really her breakthrough. After one episode of A Bit of Fry and Laurie, she was in King Ralph with um, John Goodman, the BBC series of Tom Jones with Samantha Morton and Max Beasley. <laughs> Can't imagine what that's like. Wow. Then a few British gangster films, which is kind of what she was most known for in the noughties, most notably The Business with Danny Dyer and Tamer Hassan. Oh, yeah. Uh, three episodes of comedy drama Honest. She's in uh, the disgraced Noel Clarke's films Adulthood and 4321. Oh, I've seen 4321, but not Adulthood, I think. Maybe she I played. She played Jackie Tyler in Doctor Who, which I guess is where she'd be most well-known to most audiences. Oh, well, I, to, that, was that was a David Tennant. Oh, no, was. Oh, she okay. was Billy Piper's mum in it. So that was the brief time I watched Doctor Who. And that's where I know her from. Ah, okay. Well, there you go then. So my supposition was right there. Um, 17 episodes of Him and Her. Now this I didn't know, and I bet you didn't know this either. She's the makeup artist in This Time with Alan Partridge. Oh, Wow. But because you never see her, you only ever really hear her, don't you? And yeah. she's ri- like, she only has like a couple of lines, but she's really funny in it, I think. And Camille Kaduri is also in 14 episodes of King Gary, the Tom Davis sitcom, which I've never seen. Have you seen that? I've not seen that, no, but that come, that'll come up in our next episode. Speaking of that, I most recently heard her as the narrator in The Curse, which you've preempted, Guy, we will talk about next week. Janet Suzman, who plays Sister Liz, is mostly famous for theatre, uh, but she was also in Nicholas and Alexandra as Alexandra, and she's in The Singing Detective, but not much in terms of comedy connections. Unlike Doris Hare, who plays the older Sister Mary, there's two Sister Marys in this film, confusingly, 
She is in the 1960 League of Gentlemen, the Comedy Playhouse, Betty Hill, Ronnie Barker Playhouse, Randall and Hotcoke Deceased, the original 67 episodes of On the Buses, Guy, meaning oh. that she was also in all three movies. We're not going to be able to escape this film. Oh, for fuck's sake. It's coming, isn't it? We might have to get it over sooner rather than later. <laughs> Please, not yet. Not yet. Uh, she's in three of the Confessions of films as Mrs. Lee. Excuse the pun, they might be coming as well. Mm-hmm. And six episodes of Adrian Mole, where she plays Queenie Baxter. Uh, and she's also in one episode of Alexi Sales Stuff. Ah. Let's move on to Jonathan Lynn, who is both writer and director of this film. Uh, started with uh, one episode of Doctor at Large and then was in some, uh, wrote some of the other Doctor things and, and actually acted in them as well, I believe. Uh, three episodes of On the Buses, again. <laughs> 13 episodes of My Brother's Keeper, in which he also starred. Uh, Before Yes Minister in the early 80s, he wrote and directed Clue, which I absolutely loved. He wrote one episode of what I assume to be a US version of Yes Minister called Mr. President with George C. Scott. And then, yes, Prime Minister, obviously, leading on from Yes Minister. Yeah. After Nuns on the Run, not much until rebooting Yes, Prime Minister in 2013 after its run in the West End with David Haig and Harry Goodman uh, reviving their roles. As director, get ready to have your mind blown, guy. <laughs> Did you look? I told you not to look them up, but have you? No, I haven't. Good. As I've already said, Clue. Uh, but that started a kind of big snowball effect in Hollywood uh, in which he did the following films. The Oscar-winning My Cousin Vinny. I love My Cousin Vinny and didn't realise it was him. Directed by Jonathan Lynn. Oh, my God. Eddie Murphy's The Distinguished Gentleman. (laughs) Greedy, the Steve Martin version of Sergeant Bilko. What? I've seen that as well. (laughs) (laughs) I've seen it as well when I was a kid. Yeah, Uh, me too. A Trial and Error, which was a film I liked. That's uh, Eugene Levy and Jeff Daniels. Okay. The Whole Nine Yards. Bruce Willis and Matthew Perry, rest in peace. This one I find really bizarre. The Cuba Gooding Jr. and Beyonce rom-com, The Fighting Temptations. (laughs) (laughs) And then off the back of that, presumably because she loved him so much, he directed one of Beyonce's videos for He Still Loves Me. Oh, God. And a film in 2010 called Wild Target with Emily Blunt and Rupert Grint and Bill Nye, which I've not seen. No, I don't know that. I mean... Every single one of his credits is more surprising than the last, I think. Yeah. I do want to mention one other person and some of their production credits. Who do you think I'm going to say? I'll just tell you. George Harrison, producer. Of course. (laughs) Of course. How did I get that? Here are some of the films he's either produced or exec produced, uh, which I'm sure you've delved into a bit more, but I'll, I'll just list some of them off. Magical Mystery Tour, obviously, and Let It Be, obviously. Little Malcolm and his struggle against the eunuchs. <laughs> Producer of Life of Brian, The Long Good Friday, Time Bandits, Michael Palin's Missionary. Is that on our list? I don't know. Maybe it should be. I think I've seen that. I have a feeling I've seen it. I don't know. I've not. Uh, Mona Lisa, which is a great film. Shanghai Surprise, mm. With Nail and I, and How to Get Ahead in Advertising. So... Those are my uh, Britcom comedy connections and credentials, Guy. You've um, been looking into Yes Minister. 
Yeah, because I thought, what is our connection really with Nuns on the Run? And we didn't want to do too much of a dive into Eric Idle's work just yet, because we thought we'd do that later on. So I thought with Jonathan Lynn being our kind of writer-director, why not have a look at his probably his most famous and probably his greatest work, Yes Minister. So it ran for three series of Yes Minister, 1980 to 1984, and Yes Prime Minister in 1986 to 1988 with two series. It was set in the private office of the fictional department Hacker struggles to make any kind of meaningful changes as these were opposed by civil servant and Hacker's permanent secretary, Sir Humphrey Applebait, played by Nigel Hawthorne. Stuck in the middle of all of this is Derek Folds' character, Bernard Woolley, who's the private secretary. Sir Humphrey's characteristics include his complicated sentences, his cynical views of government, and his snobbery and superciliousness. Hacker is occasionally indecisive and has a tendency to launch into ludicrous Churchillian speeches. Bernard is prone to linguistic pedantry. All the characters are able to switch to a completely opposite opinion within seconds, however convenient it is for them. So the kind of origins of Yes Minister started at Cambridge University and more specifically the Cambridge Union where co-writer Jonathan Lynn was studying. Originally thought he was going to enter politics and he said all of the main debaters there aged 20 were the most pompous, self-satisfied, self-important bunch of clowns that I ever clapped eyes on. They were all behaving as if they were on the government front bench and 20 years later they all were. Michael Howard, John Selwyn Gummer, Kenneth Clark. I thought at that point the only way that I could ever contribute to politics is to make fun of politicians. It's depressing how little we've moved on <laughs> since the 1960s in terms of who is afforded the opportunity to have power. But yeah, and I think that this is one of the things that we chatted about, Rob, probably privately, was the fact that how many storylines are still coming up that watching in Yes Minister, like I was watching a Yes Prime Minister episode earlier today, and it's on about Trident. And it's like, this is from the mid-80s, and we're still on about Trident in 2023. So... Yeah, it's, I mean, similarly to what we were saying about Michael Rimmer, really, it's that so many of the themes are evergreen, aren't they? And mm. it just shows how little ever actually gets done. Tom Slinsky, our guest in the Michael Rimmer episode, was mentioning the kind of transformative things that the Harold Wilson government did. Mm. Of course, obviously, a government not without its flaws. But when what you know how much has changed really since there you know how many kind of sweeping changes can you name post harold wilson and that's incredibly depressing yeah exactly and it just it feels like nothing actually really gets done but as this is a podcast about comedy uh, uh, speaking of the thatcher government that would have been such good fodder for lynn and anthony jay when they were writing yes minister yeah, 100%. Although what's interesting, it was Margaret Thatcher's favourite TV show. <laughs> Which, you know, just shows, but that's not, you know, that's not the show's fault. Yeah, but it's like, um, I, I would liken that to uh, bigots who love Al Murray, the pub landlord. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> just missing the point completely. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, the idea of, of Yes Minister was to satirise politics, not the party, because Hacker sits at the polit political centre, you know, it's, it's not really about... I, th I think what it shows is they're both kind of interchangeable, really. And, 
you know, th- this is a point I rather ham-fistedly made in the Michael Rimmer episode, but the centre is a great place to satirise. Mm. The, the thick of it did it did it pretty well, didn't it, for a, a couple of series? And yes, Minister does it as well. And it's it's good to kind of expose the vacuousness of believing in nothing, yeah. <laughs> or, or or being able to have your have your head turned for no reason other than to continue to grasp onto a little bit of power. Uh, and it, that's something that, as you say, the, the Yes Minister really highlights well. And with, you know, with Paul Ellington's character changing mm. his mind constantly th- throughout episodes and nothing really getting resolved. And it's quite an accurate, accurate portrayal of what happens in Westminster on a daily basis. Yeah, exactly. And there's a, a, a brilliant episode I watched, the one about Trident, where he wants to scrap Trident because to save some money and he also wants his own cook as well because his wife isn't there to do his lunch so they get him a cook and he decides to not scrap trident because he'll be the first prime minister with his own cook so he's he's made a small victory let's talk about the uh the insiders that jay and lynn had um from the harold wilson and james callahan governments uh the labor governments who provide them with info for episodes these were marcia falkender and bernard donahue the published diaries of richard crossman were also used and described his battles with the dame his permanent secretary the formidable baroness sharp the first woman to hold a position the dame would also be used as a nickname for sir humphrey Jay had felt as early as 1965 that there was an inverted alchemy operating in Whitehall, capable of frustrating the most passionate campaigner. The writers would meet with several leading civil servants from the Royal Institute of Public Administration, which was a think tank for the public service sector, which helped develop some of the storylines. The show was videotaped in front of a live studio audience, which also was the standard practice at the BBC at the time, but the actors didn't really enjoy filming it as they felt it placed them under additional pressure. Lynn actually thought the studio audience helped because laughter is a communal affair. It also acted as insurance because politicians were unable to put pressure on the BBC to cancel the show if you've got 250 people who are laughing each week. Um, and it won a BAFTA. I mean, it won several BAFTAs for Best Comedy in 1980, 81, and 1982. And Nigel Hawthorne won the BAFTA for Best Light Entertainment Performance in 1981, 82, 86, and 87. And, yeah, what are your thoughts, Rob, on Yes Minister? Were you a fan of it, or is it something you've watched much of? It's something I didn't watch much as a kid, certainly, and something I became more aware of um in my kind of late teens, early twenties, I guess. I remember having a, a bit of a splurge on it when I was at university hmm. and then not really watched it much since then. And I should have done because it's very good. And it is, you know, there's so many obvious influences um, for the thick of it, which is, you know, probably my favorite uh, political sitcom satire. Uh, so yeah, I mean, it's something I actually haven't in preparation for this. I've only watched Yes Minister and not Yes Prime Minister, so I need to go back and and revisit that as well. But I mean, would you, would you say that generally it's better uh, that Yes Minister is generally better than Yes Prime Minister? Yeah, I think it probably holds up a little bit stronger, but I think Yes Prime Minister is good. But I think there's something about those early episodes, and it, it manages to keep keep going the the kind of themes and the, the comedy as well 
I think those first initial series are so good, though, of um, uh, of Yes Minister, and but it's it's just nice to see Jim Hacker almost over promoted and still has no power even as prime minister. It still continues. I I love the scenes with his wife and just kind of like how just generally kind of dismissive of how important his job is <laughs> she is yeah. which is you know probably much more accurate than uh, than his own kind of ideas of how important he is yeah 100 percent. that's it i mean i i got to it because of my dad my dad absolutely absolutely loves it and so it was him who showed it to me and i'd watch it with him probably when i was in my maybe teens or late teens because he would always talk i think he's got like the the book of the scripts and all that so he's a big fan I mean, I love the the Sir Humphrey Appleby character, and the the way he goes on those speech on those speeches when he has to get a point across, and he makes a point about nothing, and manages to win, is great. He, he did one the other day in the Yes Prime Minister way. I don't know how many times he used the word probably, but it was a lot, and he just baffles Jim Hacker and wins the argument. You know, he is so brilliant, isn't he? And and Nigel Hawthorne is that program would be nothing without his central performance yeah i would say you can see why he won the bafta four times or whatever like who's going to come up against that and the way he was able to remember those speeches as well oh yeah they, i mean they would write some serious uh, i mean but he's a a theater actor isn't he so that yeah. would have been quite quite bread and butter for him and but yeah award-winning on the on the west end and on broadway as well mm-hmm. wasn't he yeah, exactly. But the, there's something about the dialogue in that show. There's like the rhythm that that they use and the the rhythm they're talking and the way the jokes are structured are just it's so interesting. You don't really get comedies like that so much now. I think that have that sort of structure to it that I is just quite nice to listen to and watch. Yeah, when I was researching Nuns on the Run, there wasn't a great deal of information about it. You know, there was nothing about the production, where the idea came from. It just feels like it went into production, it got made, and it came out. But it was produced by Handmade Films, who was George Harrison's um, film production company. So I thought I'd do a little mini dive into Handmade Films and its history and a little bit about what it did. So the film industry in the 1970s was in decline. There was the withdrawal and collapse of major players, such as a rank organization and EMI. Dwindling audiences and lack of support from Hollywood didn't help either. By the 1980s, the industry was in the hands of small indies such as Palace, Goldcrest, and Handmade Films. But how did Handmade Films come into existence? Well... In 1978, Monty Python's Life of Brian was about to go into production. Funded by EMI, its chairman, Lord Delfont, finally got round to reading the screenplay. But he was outraged by it, and he pulled the plug due to all the references to religion and Jesus and all of that that the Pythons were obviously poking fun at. Eric Idle phoned friend and Python fan George Harrison, who was also the richest person he knew, and asked for help. Harrison's business manager, Dennis O'Brien, suggested they fund the film themselves. The only issue was that they had to remortgage Harrison's mansion in Henley-on-Thames, as well as his manager's London offices. Harrison would call it the most expensive cinema ticket ever issued. But how else was he going to see the new Monty Python film? So as you said, Rob, handmade films would produce several classics of British cinema, such as The Life of Brian, Long Good Friday, Time Bandits, Mona Lisa, and Whitnail and I, which I am a big fan of. Now, Time Bandits I have seen, but just such a long time ago. But every other film on that list, I can absolutely say, yes, great film. Oh yeah, me too. I think they're all. It's been a long time since I've seen Time Bandits. But from what I remember of it, I remember loving it. 
Have you seen Have you seen Mona Lisa? I don't think I've seen Mona Lisa, but I have seen The Long Good Friday. It's such a shame that Bob Hoskins died as early as he did. The sort of stuff that we'd be getting from Bob Hoskins now would be would yeah. be great, and he was probably the 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 most underrated British acting talent ever, possibly. There's that scene in The Long Good Friday at the end where he realizes what's gone on and how he's been played. And he is just brilliant. Apparently they just told him, just think about what you've gone through, what your character's gone through throughout this movie and play it in your head. And that's what he came up with. And that scene where he realizes. It's great. Underrated Bob Hoskins. Great ending. Yeah. Yeah, it's brilliant. Um, Eric Idle would say, if you looked at the British film industry in the 1980s and took handmade films out, there'd be almost nothing left. The company rarely scored any BAFTA nominations, let alone won any. And they were, they were ignored really. It says, uh, ben Timler, who was a co-director of the documentary An Accidental Studio about handmade films. He would also go on to say, the British film industry was much more interested in merchant ivory, whereas handmade was down and dirty and different and doing things the establishment couldn't get its head around, which is definitely the sort of films I'd rather be watching than merchant ivory. Yes, I'm with you there. Handmade would give chances to first-time directors, unknown actors, and salvage films that were being thrown away by other studios. George Harrison believed if you had passion, he could make your dream come true. The issues came to when trying to balance the wishes of the two owners. Harrison wanted to keep the company small and personal, whereas O'Brien wanted to go big and crack Hollywood. He also wanted to oversee the artistic side of things. He thought his ideas were better, and he began alienating the Pythons and other filmmakers. Things went wrong with the failure of two would-be blockbusters, 1985's Water, starring Michael Caine, which I, I don't remember, and 1986 flop Shanghai Surprise, starring Madonna and Sean Penn, which I've not seen. I've not seen, but I've heard. So yeah. I, I think there's there's a lot of film podcasts that talk about kind of disasters of filmmaking, and, and this is something that comes up a lot. So There's a good um, How Did This Get Made episode, I think, about shanghai surprise which is worth a listen handmade films invested in too many films that never saw the light of day and harrison admitted that he often didn't like the script or the film but didn't want to rock the boat handmade shut up shop in 1991 and sold its name and back catalog three years later and that was the end of handmade films so a year after nuns on the run came out that was it yeah well that <laughs> that's a um that doesn't bode well for a film we're about to talk about, does it? If if Nuns on the Run did for handmade films, which made some absolute classics of British cinema history, uh, it's worrying for what we're about to talk about. Exactly. So, Rob, I guess this is a good time before we get into the film, is have you seen Nuns on the Run, or had you seen before doing this podcast, had you seen Nuns on the Run before? I had... But I obviously hadn't remembered it very well. What happened in my head was I was misremembering a lot of other other Eric Idle performances as being part of Nuns on the Run, so specifically Splitting Airs, which, again, it's been a long time since I've seen that, but I, I think I, probably, I was probably more familiar with that film. Uh, so yes, as a young kid and didn't really remember it, but was very much looking forward to uh, to watching it. Yeah, I I'd never seen it, but I always remember it being on ITV. It being advertised on ITV. I, Nuns on the Run, ITV Saturday at nine or something like that. And I always remember the image of 
Eric Idle and Robbie Coltrane in the nun's outfit, the habit or whatever it's called. And those sort of, so it was always on the radar. I just hadn't seen it. Well, that's it, isn't it? It's one of those films that I will always remember for seeing on the shelves of rental, uh, uh, video rental shops. Yeah. So shall we get into nuns on the run? Let's do it. Cool. Let's do it after this. No, no, look, I've told you, with spectacles, testicles, wallet and watch, I'm enjoying this. Nice. Nice! Look, Charlie, some con men sell life insurance. The church sells afterlife insurance. It's brilliant. Everyone thinks you might need it and no one can prove you don't. The church isn't selling anything, Brian. Oh, well, if the church isn't selling anything, how did he get to be so rich? Just remember, whenever there's a deep human need, there's money to be made. Well, you think so? Of course. Look at Kentucky Fried Chicken. Is that what you're saying? God wanted the church to be rich? No, but God's very busy. He can't control all the details. He's running a franchise operation. Nuns on the run. We open with the title sequence, which is shit. Yeah, it's nothing, is it? It's just three minutes of really quite dull text with black. with nothing really going on is there some sort of anime is it black with sort of multiple like animated like boxes and things going is that right I, I can't even remember it is so uninteresting yeah the most interesting thing about it is the music that's playing which is the race by yellow and i've done the tiniest dive into yellow guy go on tell me about yellow because well i just put um what is this music is it swing funk so tell me about this please. well i would describe yellow as craft work for people who did the majority of their music shopping at motorway service stations <laughs> i like that <laughs> but they were a swiss electronic act formed in 1979 most famous for two tracks heavily featured in movies the first was oh yeah oh, no, no. which yeah. of course is featured in ferris bueller's day off and The Secret of My Success with Michael J. Fox, which was a big favourite of mine growing up. And it's also uh, the theme music for Duffman in The Simpsons. <laughs> yes. <laughs> which says it all. Uh, and then the second of their most famous songs, of Yellow's most famous songs, is The Race, which is featured in this film. In fact, Yellow did a lot of the soundtrack, including several new songs for this film. The Race was also featured on soundtracks for, for Richard and Pora, starring Tim Allen and Kirstie Alley. Opportunity Knock, starring Dana Carvey as a con man before Wayne's World. And the Steve Martin remake of Pink Panther in 2006. Oh, God. Wow. It was also used as BBC Grandstand's menu music for a time as well, across various programming on Eurosport in the early 90s. Nice. Uh, UK comedy-wise, it's also featured on Series 4 of Benidorm, and it charted at number 7 in the UK, on the UK charts, on its release in 1988. I would say it's the dictionary definition of the word naff. So, uh, <laughs> thanks, Switzerland. What was that? What's that one called? It's called, uh, that's called Oh Yeah. Oh Yeah, yeah. That, that was on the Edgar Wright McDonald's ad as well recently that he directed. Oh. The one with the, eyebr- the people doing the eyebrows, if you've seen that. In the- Edgar Wright directed that? Yeah. No, had no idea. Mm. 
yeah, so that's the most that's the most interesting thing about that really, really boring opening credits. And I was worried from the off. Yeah, so the film then actually begins with Brian, Eric Idle, eating eggs and chips in a cafe. Very depressing egg and chips. Yeah, a very depressing kind of greasy spoon cafe of the of 1990. Charlie, Robbie Coltrane sits down with him. The two moan about their work and the stress of it. We have some conversation about the pub because Charlie is having a steak on a Friday instead of fish. Brian says they've got to go, but Charlie says they can wait. No pension plan, no insurance, no job security. Charlie thinks they should just pack it in. These opening scenes don't look good, aren't directed well, aren't shot well, and are worry, and I'm just hoping things are going to improve at this point. So there's lots of weird kind of low angles, for no, weird low angles which just look incredibly dated, lots of fish eyes, lots of tight close-ups, and this is a theme throughout the film. Everything's shot very tightly, and it, it all smacks of disguising a lack of budget and also I guess a lack of directing experience from Mm. um, Jonathan Lynn, although he had directed clue before this. Yeah. So he should know what he was doing, but yeah, they really hate this bank job, but they don't know how to do anything else. Another man approaches and then says, it's time for work boys back at two. Remember? So our two leads look annoyed in a bank. We now have a robbery. So the man we saw earlier, this big fella, pulls out a gun and then his accomplice with a machine gun yells, hit the deck or dead! He sounded like he was doing like an American accent here, but... Yeah, but again, like, like this entire... This this that should be quite an exciting opening bit. Like, again, can you imagine this reshot now by somebody like Edgar Wright? Mm. You know, maybe like the kind of early scenes of Baby Driver or something like that. But it's not. Again, all done really tight close-ups, and it's very... I'm beginning to wonder if it was kind of shot with TV in mind. Also, what's worth noticing is that I'm I'm kind of watching it in a... This is a bit like what you said about Staggered. I'm watching it in a kind of squashed four-by-three. And it's probably an an issue with with the, the version of it that I had. But it just all... It's all lit like TV as well these opening bits it looks really cheap and this yeah mm. this scene does look cheap so he fires the gun at the ceiling the bullets ricochet and it hits the other man killing him you shot louie you arsehole says brian eric idle charlie pulls up outside in a ford escort back inside another man tells the men who've come to deliver the money to the bank that he's taken it a woman tries to make a run for it screaming brian grabs her and says he uh, he knows how i know how you feel and tries to force valium down her throat very very weird and what that did remind me of was a scene that's done for a much kind of darker comedic effect and much better in a film that we're that we're going to do at some point, Guesthouse Paradiso, where yeah. he's, uh, Rick Mail is forcing pills down, um, what's the name, Finella Fielding's throat. Yeah. yeah. We've got royalty coming, so you better fucking behave yourself. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I wish we were doing that instead of this. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, I mean, what, what does that say on the first five minutes of Nuns on the Run that we wish we were watching Guesthouse Paradiso instead? Yeah, exactly. By no means a perfect film. Oh, no, not at all, but... I- I'd rather be watching... I, I like Eric Idle, though. Do you know what I mean? I enjoy Monty mm. Python, as we've said before, but... Yeah, it's not... Anyway, we'll, we'll get into that. So he offers uh, Charlie a Valium, 
Yeah, so the, this comes up in the last scene. So I didn't make a note of it when it comes up in the in the opening scene. He tries to give Charlie a Valium. Yeah. For, and it's like, oh, so the, is this just like his thing, just tries to give everyone a Valium? Obviously, Valium was a, a big gag in 1990, uh, I think. Well, it, it, yeah, it, they're trying to set it up and then it doesn't, okay, it just, it's forgotten about, isn't it, after the first uh, few minutes? Yeah, there's no payoff because it, it never gets mentioned again. Um, yeah, so the, this other man yells at Brian to kill her, but he doesn't have a gun, so the gang may, make a getaway with the money. We have a dodgy transition, and now we're down by the canal as Brian and Charlie moan about how it's not like it used to be. All the guns and all the violence. That's King's Cross, those canals, oh. uh, an area that looks very, well, in some ways looks very different. I mean, you've got the big kind of, the... Uh, what the, the the gas cooler things mm. uh which are still there but it's it's all quite um arty farty in a corporate way behind there now oh is it uh, but they've also got quite a, a a cool little kind of nature walk bit behind there as well that i went to with my kids fairly recently uh so it was nice to look at that and there are some decent ish bits of london but again the way that it's shot you don't get to kind of appreciate where it's shot very much no, it could have been anywhere, it felt, really. Well, exactly. And with the scene we're about to talk about as well, speaking of locations that have changed the way they look, they're now about yeah. to turn up at Stamford Bridge. That's right. But before that, they don't want to tell Case that they want out of his firm. All Charlie knows is they wanted a fast driver, and that's all he's ever wanted to be. Uh, well, yeah, Charlie... Charlie's eating in every scene so far as well, isn't he? Which mm. seems like a bit of a cheap gag. Fat man making meat all the time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so in the next scene, Brian and Charlie are shopping for cars, other people's, and we're outside, as you said, Rob, Stamford Bridge, Chelsea's football ground, in the days when the old dog track was there, I think. <laughs> yeah, and you've got the policeman coming out saying, this isn't an all-ticket match because they're pretending that they're trying to get in on the turnstile and the policeman says, but this isn't an all ticket match. And just the idea that any matches at Stamford bridge wouldn't be all ticket. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so a policeman approaches them and asks what they're up to They So they couldn't get into the match. Charlie manages to steal his wallet. Then he can all Toyota and make their getaway. A car park steward tries to stop them and Charlie shows them the copper's ID police move it. They take the car and a mechanic called Norm, who I recognised from a 60s British new wave film called The Leather Boys. <laughs> Bloody hell, guy. Yeah. That's, uh, that's some good noticing. Yeah, I was like, I recognise that man. And yeah, he played, he play, there was a film called The Leather Boys in the early 60s with Rita Tushingham and Dudley Sutton. And it was about his mot- motorcycle gang. And good spot. Yeah, it's a good, uh, it's a good little um, British social realist new wave film if anyone's into that and they also use clips for it in the smith's girlfriend in a coma music video Ah, which uh, is worth uh, checking out which has rita tushingham in it so this mechanic called norm wants to leave case's employment charlie tells him it's a no but norm says that case is fine with it they tell him he knows too much and poor norm don't you think i can trust him they both look as if he's an idiot i've written at this point I hate the way this film is shot and all these angles are giving me a fucking headache. Like it, it, it just, it's so all over the shop. Yeah. 
I'd really, it's all really extreme, extreme close-ups, Dutch angles, or, or weird kind of uh, low angles where, where there's just no need for them whatsoever. Um, and it doesn't look good. It doesn't. It doesn't add anything to to the scene. And yeah, it's a big problem all the way through. It's all a bit film studenty, isn't it? Mm. It feels like it's trying to be like the graduate you know, Mike Nichols with all the kind of weird Dutch angles and shooting in reflections and shooting all these different bits, but he doesn't have the craft of Mike Nichols. There's only one thing Norm says. I told him you guys wanted out as well. Charlie and Brian aren't laughing. Now we see a man called Mr. Casey watching the long good Friday on TV, eating popcorn and having his nails done. Yeah. That was a good little in joke. Wasn't it? Yeah. Watching long good Friday. Yeah. I don't think, um, the guy playing Mr. Case is up there with Bob Hoskins, though, in the He, he is in, in, for the main baddie, he is in no way menacing at all. Instantly forgettable, doing a, a odd wavering accent, mm. and, yeah, just dull. Yeah, nothing about him whatsoever. You wouldn't think that he's this commanding figure of this London crime firm. I've also written at this point is what's the point in shooting all this stuff on location if every shot's going to be a close up or tighter? <laughs> like, what's the, you know, why aren't they using this stuff to their advantage, using Stamford Bridge properly to their advantage, mm. using the King's Cross canals properly? Yes. Yeah. It's, it's just, yeah. It's, it's so limited. It, it's, like, it's like Jonathan Lynn's per- purposefully limiting himself mm. seems mad just get a bloody wide angle lens and show us the canals yeah <laughs> well that yeah it do, yeah like i said it feels a bit student film like when you haven't got the budget and so you just shoot mm. on one lens yeah so Char- charlie and brian go around to see him care says he's got something for them in the car uh, outside it's norm he's dead what did he die of asked brian He wanted to work for somebody else. Oh, natural causes, says Charlie. Brian and Charlie tie a load of weights to Norm's body and throw him in the canal. Brian's upset about it and goes to the casino to lose some money. And this is something I never believe that Eric Idle, Eric Idle in particular, is a gangster. No. No, definitely not. I think he... It's just every, everything about his look in this film is is odd for me. Yeah. The, the, the way they're trying to say, like his haircut. I don't know. I, get, I guess late 80s gangsters had had that kind of mullet, but it, he, he looks like, does just look like somebody's dad. Yeah. And I, I keep thinking he's older than he is at that point. I think he's in his mid 40s at that point. He looks and he's, he's dressed like, and he looks like he's in his mid 50s. Yeah. It's all, all very weird. Well, I looked it up because for this next scene, because I wanted to work out the age difference between him and yeah, Emil. I did the same thing because immediately it's fucking gross, isn't it? So the first, <laughs> the first thing I wanted to look up is what's their age difference, and yeah, I was as disappointed with that casting as I thought I would be. I think, yeah, I think you have to... 22 years, was it? Yeah, so he, he was born 1943. I think she was born 1964 or 65. So it's, yeah. 21, 22 years. You have to, and if you're going to do it, look, 
you have age gap relationships, fine, but you have to reference it. There has to be, you can't, they never make a reason for it in the film. It's just accepted. She's no. this young woman. He's this man, older man, and they're going to get it on. There is no reason why she, why she, that cannot be an age appropriate character, why mm. she cannot be an age appropriate character. Or, so there, there's also no reason for the kind of the half assed romantic um storyline of this really is i mean i know it's a little bit kind of integral to the plot in terms of the choices the characters make later on but that it's not sold very well at all that obviously there's zero chemistry she Mm. looks her age which is early to mid-20s at that point he looks older than he is yes and so it's just fucking gross and (laughs) and really off-putting and distracting and no yeah, it's 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 not good because I I me I thought he was older. I immediately looked it up and went, he must be like like you said, he must be in his fifties. I was like, mm. he's forty eight or forty seven. Mm. Yeah, shit. So yeah. we have a waitress called Faith who is uh, Camille uh, Kaduri, and she has lost her glasses. She goes over to Brian. I mean, I fucking hate this losing her glasses blind as a bat. But it, but so much of the plot is dependent on it, and so that's why they have to layer it on thick in the beginning. But it, I mean, it's just, it's just crap. I mean, because because they either for whatever reason, obviously we're going to get onto this later, but for whatever reason, they either didn't have the budget or 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 didn't really want to drag them up too much. So much of it is dependent on the people looking at them either being too old to tell having poor eyesight to tell that these are men wearing habits or as she is blind without her glasses. Yeah, exactly. And it's just, it's so labored. One good thing about this scene in the casino one, and that's uh, the music playing in the background is going out of my head by Dion Warwick. And yeah. it's a very good song. It's a great track, but the rest of that scene is shit. The casino doesn't look like a casino. no, Obviously, I think they were just using multiple sets and just putting stuff in. Because doesn't it look very similar to the health spa later on? Case's health. Yeah, it's probably the same. It looked like similar to what we said all those episodes back at Lesbian Vampire Killers, where they do the two se- the, the scene with Matthew Horn breaking up with his girlfriend and the scene with James Gordon getting fired. That's the same room. Yeah. Same room, barely disguised as different rooms. Um. And that, yeah, and this is the this is the same thing. Yeah, and, they, and I I wrote at this point. Oh, are they doing? Are they going to do a reverse? She's all that with this film because that that's quite interesting. Mm. Put her glasses on to make her look, you know, to complete her look. But no, it's 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 all just for shitty plot purposes. <laughs> and and then she says <laughs> when she puts her glasses on, she goes, "Oh, so that's what you look like." And I've written, "Yes." old <laughs> old enough to be your father at least gross fucking gross yeah so she goes over to brian staring intently at his face and asks him if he wants a drink she walks into a chair and then one of the posts in the middle of the room she then spills coffee over brian and then some pencil dick tells her that she's fired but brian saves the day and says oh it's all my fault Brian asks her out for breakfast, but she can't because she's about to start her other job. She needs the money to go to college because she can't get a grant. I mean, she's going to fucking college, Rob. Ah, grants. They were good, weren't they? (laughs) Yeah. 
Brian asks for her phone number. She says no. He gives her his number, and her colleague brings her glasses to her. Now we're in the car with Charlie, Brian, Case, and another man. They're staking out the local triads. I've written here, if they're targeting triads, does this mean there's incoming racism? And quickly, when one of the triads comes up to the <laughs> to the door, why you'll follow us? Yes, there's incoming racism. Yeah, and they all just have like bits of what look like kitchen utensils as weapons as well. A red Mercedes pulls up. The boys follow it in a new blue Toyota. Trying to look inconspicuous, we have a lovely shot of page three from the sun. Denim dazzlers. <laughs> a triad wants to know why they're following them and say so if they do that again they'll chop their arms off brian thinks they should steal the money for themselves then go to rio brian takes faith out she wants to study psychology she's got a job at the king's college london dreaming they pay her 10 pound an hour to dream which isn't good in it they kiss and we get some nice george harrison on the soundtrack two things about this one 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 is a good thing when they're walking up the stairs there's finally a decent like a, a, an interesting crane shot which finally this looks like a film yes um the george harrison the way that george harrison song starts sounds like softcore porn <laughs> yes uh and then finally because it did i was like why are they playing this music <laughs> over over one of the most uncomfortable film kisses I've ever seen. Yeah. Because he properly goes for it, doesn't he? And I don't think she's enjoying it, and it's... Mm. It's not great. Like, but yeah, I don't think you'd be, you'd be able to get away with a screen kiss like that. But when I say get away, with, you know, like him yeah. kind of giving it all he's giving it. Mm. I think, for yeah. real, by the looks of it. And her not so much. Yeah, I think that's probably why they have intimacy coaches now. Exactly. For things like that. We cut to Faith on the bus with a sign around her neck. Please wait me when I get to King's College. Brian's got Faith a job at Casey's Health Club. That casino was run by gangsters, you know. Mm. Poor Faith. I put, she asks him what business he's in. He says he's an entrepreneur. So Charlie turns up. And then he pisses Faith off, and when she goes, he asks Brian what kind of shag she was. Brian says it's not like that. They just kiss and cuddle. Charlie thinks Brian's in love. He wants to forget Faith because the women in Rio are the most beautiful in the world. Looks like they're off there then. Charlie tells Brian to dump her. Faith goes into Case's office to tidy up. Case and his henchmen enter saying shoot to kill faith hides and hears case say he doesn't trust brian and charlie anymore and tomorrow will be their last day on this planet he hands out the guns to the boys so the following day the red mercedes pulls up outside the suburban house again and a man with a couple of suitcases leaves the house these are the triads faith jumps out of a taxi telling brian who's the lookout stood by a tree that he needs to leave with her because they're gonna kill him and they wrestle let go of me. I'm trying to commit a major crime. The triads watch and laugh. Case's henchmen pull up in the car and threaten the triads and make them put their hands up. Charlie puts a homemade bomb in a biscuit tin in the henchman's car. Brian tells the henchman not to shoot the triads. Him and Charlie pull their guns on Case's boys and make them join the triads with their hands up. They grab the cases of money and run. Charlie shouts, we've got six seconds! And the car blows up. They drive off, making their getaway. There goes the last of the budget with that explosion. 
cheap, 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 big explosion, cheap, 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 cheap. And they've reintroduced the race by yellow again at this point. Oh, okay. Yeah, I didn't notice. Um, but yeah, cool. Uh, their joy is short-lived as the car dies on them. They've run out of petrol. The triads and the henchmen shoot at them. Brian and Charlie run away. The henchman shoots one of the triads and also tries to shoot Faith as we hear the police sirens. Charlie spots an open door. They run through it and slam it shut after them. The police turn up. There is a police siren POV shot whilst the car is driving. Fair enough, but done by Naked Gun. Yeah. In two <laughs> films already at this point. I mean, yeah. come on. Oh, God. Okay. Yeah. I've also written at this point, I haven't laughed yet. <laughs> and we're a good half an hour in now, aren't we? Yeah, we are. And I felt the same as, as you, Rob, that I was a bit worried. And something else, I, I didn't bring this up earlier. It's just coming to my head. The, the bit in the bank robbery, everyone seems to be dressed in different sort of period clothing. Like Eric Idle seems to be dressed like a sort of spiff from like the 40s or 50s. Mm. No one seems to be kind of that contemporary. It all seems a bit weird. It's full of inconsistencies and, and weird kind of rushed things, especially this first kind of half an hour. Mm. It, you would hope that it would kind of settle down once they, once they get to the convent, which, uh, which is incoming. Yeah, so Faith faints from the sight of blood on her arm because um, she's kind of taken a, a shot. Inside, Brian and Charlie realise that they're in a nunnery. They sneak about, loudly dodging different nuns. They run to the basement and check the suitcases, which are full of cash. An elderly nun brings some laundry down in a basket. She sorts the washing, hangs it up and leaves. Don't know how she didn't see all that cash sat there, but hey-ho. So, yeah, so this is the older Sister Mary played by Doris Hare, the uh, British comedy stalwart. So maybe that's why she didn't see the money, although I don't think that's put down that she's blind as a bat. But hey-ho. This is where we're at, Rob. Charlie wonders what they're going to do. The place will be crawling with cops. Cuts to Brian and Charlie walking through the streets dressed as nuns. The plane tickets are still in the car, so there's only one thing for it. Hiding the nunnery, but first they'll need makeup. They spot a chemist. They buy some makeup, put it on in the shop to the bemusement of the woman behind the counter. Do nuns normally wear makeup? It's our day off, they tell her. Charlie and Brian knock on the door of the nunnery. They tell the sister that they've come from Chipping Sudbury and their arrival is expected. She says it isn't. Chipping Sudbury is near where I grew up. Oh, so it's a uh, real it's, place. It's very near Thornbury. Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a nice place. It's a kind of posh area of uh, a, a little posh town in South Gloucestershire. Uh, next to a not so posh town, a bigger not so posh town next to it called Yates, which you may have heard of. And the the running joke was where I grew up was that everyone who was from Yates would say that they were from Chipping Sobbery. Ah, right. Okay. One of those sort of places. The, the other thing I was going to say about this um, section is that they say they've left their tickets in the car, which is a joke that couldn't happen now, could it? Because you don't have tickets for flights. No. So they meet Mother Superior, Sister Liz. So they call themselves Sister Inviolata of the Immaculate Conception and Sister Euphema of the Five Wounds, which I think that those are quite good and probably the best jokes in the film. Sister Liz tells them they run a teacher training college at this convent for 
18 to 22 year old girls. I, I'm going to be honest, Rob. I was worried when I heard this line. Well, you're going to say you were saying that the previous line was one of, one of the best jokes you thought, followed by one of the worst lines was, "You have experience of eighteen year old girls." Yes. Yeah. He goes, "Yes, Pl- plenty, awful," and it, it's going to get worse, Rob. From this point, is that supposed to be endearing? Are we meant to think, oh, these guys are disgusting? I don't think we no, are. No, I think we're meant to think. I think we're supposed to find that funny or, you know, cheeky. I think in 1990, it was still, were 18-year-old girls. She welcomes them to the convent, and he's off to get someone to show them around. Charlie got the names from his Auntie Mary, who's a nun. They're given a tour, which includes the college, where we have a look. Well, we have a load of 30-year-olds playing 18, which is always one of my favourite things in movies. Oh, God, yeah. I mean, and obviously the reason for that we will see later on as well in a gratuitous scene. We'll be getting to that. I don't want to spoil it for the listeners just yet, for those who haven't seen Nuns on the Run. The showers are communal, Charlie says. Their order thinks it's a sin to show any private parts of the body in public. Charlie seems to be getting into the role of a nun a bit too much. Now we're back with Faith, whose glasses are broken, so she can't tell the police what the suspects look like. Back with Brian and Charlie, and a nun who's helping them acclimatise wants to know why they're wearing such old-fashioned clothing. We just like them, says Brian. His nun's accent is all over the shop, is Eric Idle's. It's sometimes a bit northern, it's sometimes a little bit brummy, it kind of goes in and out. Yeah. No, no commitment to that. No, and I thought with like the stuff that he did in Python, where they used to do like the, what they call the pepper pots, which was the 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 fake women characters. They always used to do. He used to be, be quite a convincing female character in those. Seemed to put more effort back in the early Python days than he is now. I dare say that uh, the second series of Monty Python probably had a bigger budget than Nuns on the Run. <laughs> Or it certainly looks that way anyway. Yeah. Somebody was pocketing a lot of money for themselves because the money, whatever money went into that budget was not on the screen. Case quizzes his henchmen about the robbery, but they don't know anything. He wants to, he wants them to get faith, find out what she knows and then kill Brian and Charlie. I put, this guy isn't very good. He isn't very good. And the scene is shot terribly with the classic, Nine, late 80s early 90s tv thriller look of uh light coming through venetian blinds <sighs> <laughs> Fucking hell. yeah yeah e- e- everything i i mean I, i'm getting i'm i'm considering turning off genuinely at this but I, I really am struggling to to carry on it was a, it was tough and that because i i obviously making the notes because i do the the, the run through it was a f- it was fucking tough because it the films will last longer for me anyway. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and this one was excruciatingly long. It's like they're trying to go for some sort of cinematic godfather lighting shit here. Oh, it is it is not cinematic. No, it is in not in the slightest. I was gonna say done on a budget of three pounds. Faith goes into the convent looking for the boys. She doesn't have her glasses, so hilarity ensues. Brian and Charlie have their more modern nun's clothing on. They meet the vicar, Father Seamus, who's taken a bit of a fancy to Sister Euphema. It's quite realistic that the priest is a sex pest, isn't it? I'll give him that. Yeah. 
Exactly. Yeah. But what isn't realistic is nobody would buy that these two are women. That's Because they've barely fucking tried. All they've done is put a habit on and that's it. Yeah. That's what I thought. Why, why would anyone like straight away be like, well, you're two, you've, you're two men that have just turned up dressed as ants. Off you go. Get shot by Casey. End of film. Yeah. Fuck off. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and that's it. But throw him in the fucking King's Cross Canal. <laughs> <laughs> Are you on Casey's side? I think I'm on Casey's side of this. No, because he's a cunt as well, isn't he? <laughs> no, they're, they're all... I'm just about on Faith's side, I think. Oh, but and I don't mean the concept of Faith. I mean the woman and, and oh. you know, and, and how clever that he's called her that. I just hate that as well. That's something else I fucking hate mm. is the yeah. is the writing of this film. Um, yeah. This whole thing that Father Seamus fancies Sister Euphema, Brian's character, does not... I know he's meant to be a creepy old priest, but surely you can see that these are just two blokes with a tiny bit of makeup yeah, and a nun's yeah. costume on. Charlie's upset because he didn't get a second look by the priest. Father Seamus says he's training with their old priest, Father Pearson, and means to catch up with him. Brian acts upset and runs off crying. Charlie tells the father the reason that he slash she is upset is because they had a romance with her last priest, a naughty one. The mother superior arrives in the chapel with the police. There's a bomb and guns being fired in the street. Have they heard anything unusual? The police don't know who or what they're looking for. Brian and Charlie hide the cases of cash they're holding. The fact they've got these cases that they keep bringing around and no one ever goes, what the fuck is in them cases, lads? Oh, sorry, sisters. Yeah. Do you or, know what I mean? Or lads, because they're lads. obviously lads. <laughs> yeah, because they're obviously a couple of blokes. The mother superior tells the police to come back when they do know and she can ask the other nuns. Sister Liz wants to speak to Sister Mary, who, when Liz is out of the room, takes a swig from a small whiskey bottle. So, yeah, she's a pisshead. So Sister Liz asks Brian to take the religious studies class of the third-year girls. Uh-oh, is what I wrote, because we all know how mm -hmm. oh, this is going to go. Brian is worried. Charlie says they can't do it because they're going out. They love exercise and run away. They're a strange pair, says Sister Liz. The retired nun says that they've got another blooming visitor. Brian and Charlie run into the street where the police are interviewing people and the road and the road is closed off. Charlie's sure they won't search a couple of nuns with suitcases after a bomb, says Brian. They run back inside. Sister Mary asks Sister Liz if she's going to tell the police. She says she'll think about it, but tells her to meditate on her weakness and pray for strength. She gives her the week off. Running back in, Brian and Charlie want to help. Charlie is given the freshman girls' physical education class to take. Dear God. They run off to hide the cases again. Oh, this whole case hiding stuff is just getting on my tits. Mm -hmm. Faith wants to speak to Sister Liz. Brian wants to talk to Faith. Charlie says he can't. She can't know that they're there, especially if Case catches her. Brian is willing to take that chance, but Charlie isn't. They need to keep her safe. Charlie explains the Holy Trinity to Brian. These lines of Charlie explaining the Holy Trinity to Brian, this is the closest I feel we're getting to uh, writing like guest minister. Yeah. It, it, it kind of feels like like the, the turn of phrase here. Uh, digging into religious inconsistencies is obviously something that Jonathan Lynn 
is is quite good at, but mm. it, and it is 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 quite good at kind of writing in this way. Yeah, not, you know, not in a fucking Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens kind kind of way, but no. yeah, it's this this feels the most like of any of the film that's like Yes Minister, but it's not. I mean, I, I'm picking something to give some slight praise to, but it's not really that worthy. I think it's fair. It doesn't last a long time and it's sort of blink and you miss it sort of mm. scene. I think it's probably the, one of the better things in the movie, but having said that, that's not a great deal of praise given the rest of it. Um, Sister Liz interviews Faith and tells her to get her grades and she can go to the school next year. Faith asks to have a look around and Liz says that she can and Faith faints. Brian and Charlie practice the sign of the cross. What is it? Testicles, testicles, wallet and... Spectacles, testicles, wallet and watch. That's which it. according to IMDB uh, is where this phrase comes from, which it, this film is where this phrase comes from, which it isn't. I was going to well, say, I don't know. maybe it popularized it for a generation of people. Who knows? Yeah, Charlie is enjoying the life of a nun. Brian tells him some comments sell life insurance. The church sells afterlife insurance, which feels one of those jokey jokes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Everyone thinks you might need it, and no one can prove you don't. Brian and Charlie argue more about religion. Faith is in a bed, having her wound wrapped in a bandage. The nun asks what happened. She knows it was a bullet wound. She'd seen them before. She was a missionary in East LA. But it, this is done for the American market, though, definitely. Because if this was if if it was done just with Britain in mind, they'd be playing netball for sure, wouldn't they? Definitely. Well, they do call them freshmen as well early in the film, don't they? So that yeah. obviously is them trying to get that American audience. So yeah, we have. Um, girls basketball we have some leery shots of girls in short shorts and charlie eyeing them up yeah yeah i put that as well yeah great stuff brian takes his class and a student asks how how he can be both a spirit and a man after a lot of guff he dismisses the class the students look bewildered charlie joins in with the girls and shows off a lot of basketball tricks to the excited gasps of the students and the Bored sigh of me. <laughs> Brian finds Faith in the hospital bed. He takes off his nun's clothing and turns it into some sort of suit. But he hides the bottoms, which look like a skirt, behind the chair and moves over to kiss Faith. He tells her that she shouldn't have followed him in there and no one can know that they're here. Plus, he doesn't want them to get too close because he's a gangster. They're in an ugly business and they're ugly people. She wants him to go straight. He says it's not that easy. He has a go at her for acting like they're married. He then tells her he's not available. Faith asks if he is married, and he tells her he is. His face says otherwise, more like it's an excuse. The retired nun turns up with some food for Faith. Brian makes a quick costume change and tells her he can handle it before changing back. Faith is surprised that the two nuns didn't see him. This is going to be a long fucking bit, I wrote, and it is. Faith says that she never wants to see him again. Cut to a steamy shower scene with loads of girls with their tits out washing themselves. Yeah, girls that are supposed to be teenagers. Yes. With their tits out. Luckily, they're probably all about 30. So, yeah, and Charlie's just kind of looking at them like an old perv. I've I've written at this point, the shaver scene is awful. Mm. And also that 
the this is the first offensive film since lesbian vampire killers that we've done i think yeah i think you're right because uh, you know we've had we've had some bad films or we've we've had some not very good films if you like the reason lesbian vampire killers is at, is at the bottom is a combination of badly made and offensive um yeah. And this is also ticking both of those boxes, guys. So it's going to be interesting when we get to the end. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it certainly is. So one of the girls asks Charlie if he's any good at other games. Yes, but not that I could play any with you. Uh, uh, Brian shows up looking for Charlie. A girl grabs a towel next to Charlie's head, giving him, giving him a face full of boob and putting a smile on his face. Brian Asks him what he's doing in there. I can't help myself, he says, as he stares at another naked girl. And then we have this weird bit where this girl tells him that it's her birthday and she's having a party in the room and they're both invited. Who invites two fucking nuns to a birthday party? Yeah. I fucking hated that yeah. bit. And I'd forgotten about it. as When that bit finally does come around, it's like, oh, yeah, so that's why there was that bit. Yeah. Who invites two nuns? Oh yeah, you 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 two on your first day are really fucking cool. So come to my birthday party. Because <laughs> we all remember inviting religious teachers, don't we, to our birthday parties? The return of the bags. Next, isn't it your favourite? Your the cases of money. Yeah, my favourite trope of the movie is this sister Liz spots them with the cases and tells them they're not allowed personal possessions and they need to give them up to the retired nun for safekeeping. They go for lunch. Brian tells Charlie he's seen faith, but he sacked her off. Charlie asks him who he's trying to kid. Cause he's in love with her. Brian is worried because Faith is going to confess to the priest. He's worried that she'll spill the beans about everything. Charlie says the priest can't repeat anything he's heard in the confessional. Brian and Charlie go to find the priest, Father Seamus. Faith is now outside, walks in the road, blindly knocking over a cyclist. We, we don't probably see the cyclist crash into the car. Don't, like, we don't properly see any of this stuff because the budget, they can't be asked. No, well, like you said, I think they've only got one lens, so mm. they didn't have the, the room to film a wide of the cyclist coming into shot. Yeah. That'd work better in a, in a wide, I think. I think you work better if you could see the cycle and all this sort of madness going on around her. But because it's mm. all filmed in close-ups, it doesn't really work. You know how many when you watch slapstick, how often is it done on a tight close-up? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. it's all wide because you need to see everything that's going on, all the craziness. Yeah, so Charlie grabs Father Seamus for a little talk, meaning that Brian can go into the confessional. Brian listens to Faith's confession, but she's in love with him. The scene just feels like an excuse for Eric Idle to do an Irish accent. Uh, yeah, I put he's doing a Terry Wogan impression. Mm. Also, I you know, uh, she's trying hard, Camille Kaduri, but uh, she she obviously doesn't believe that she's in love with him. <laughs> she doesn't <laughs> believe that her character would be in love with him, and I don't believe it. And I don't think he believes it either. I think, yeah, I wrote, I think I love him. And I've written, Ugh. <laughs> I don't think maybe this is uh, having a go too much at Camille Kaduri, but I don't think she's a good enough actress to make out that she does believe Eric Idle, <laughs> that she's in love with him. I don't, I don't know if anyone is. I, I, I think what's being asked is, is too unbelievable. <laughs> at least make her age appropriate. 
Do you know what I mean? Do you think this was yeah. written for a younger man, or do you think it was written with Eric Hyde? Because we don't know about the production. No, do you know what? I think I think it was written for him, it was written for someone his age, and that her character was written to be that young. Mm. And no, and Jonathan Lynn and anyone else involved in that process didn't see any issue with that. And obviously very few people at the time did. And now it just, you know, there's a re- you said it always used to be on ITV and it did. There's a reason it, it's not anymore. Yeah. Well, many reasons, but yeah, that's mm. probably one of the main ones. Um, so she says that she's witnessed a terrible crime, but she's not gone to the police. He says if she loves him, she'll keep her trap shut. Charlie takes the priest into another room and asks him to talk about his desires. Funny, very funny, he responds. Brian needs to absolve Faith of her sins. Luckily, Charlie shows up to whisper in his ear the correct lines. Faith leaves the church and a triad with a gun stops her. Brian is gutted. Now he realises that Faith loves him, but he's got to go to Brazil forever. Charlie tells him to forget about it. They have to leave. That, that bit with the gun, that's done a gun POV, and again, all shot really tight. I've put gun POV of Triad kidnapping Faith looks crap. Eric Idol looks so old with his shit suit and his mullet. <laughs> <laughs> Angrily writing. They try to get the bags back. They're in the cupboard, but the handles come off in Charlie's hand. The nun has gone, but she's forgotten where it is. The Triads have Faith tied up and threaten her and want to know who she is and who's got their money. She says they work for Mr. Casey. Mr. Who? No, Mr. Casey. Mm-hmm. Awful. They let Faith go and tell her to get herself a white cane. I can see very well, thank you, she says, and walks into a lamppost. Mm. I fucking hate walking into lamppost gags. We had one in Staggered that I didn't like, and we had this one. Yeah, I'd leave it to Buster Keaton, eh? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's It's been done. Years that ago. scene with the van is outside Kensington Olympia. Oh, okay. Uh, which is kind of in shots in the background, but kind of done from a side alleyway, but again, all quite tight, so not really making the most of it. She goes into the, uh, when they go into the chemist, it feels like the girl, the girl who works at the chemist has been ADR'd. Did you notice that? Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. Just cheap upon cheap upon cheap, isn't it? If it couldn't get any cheaper, you see what I mean? Yeah. They manage it. Faith is now in hospital. She's banged her head and they need to keep her in for observation. Case turns up at the convent asking for Charlie and Brian. He gives Sister Liz the photos of our two heroes. Once he's gone, Brian and Charlie approach Sister Liz and get the photo off her. They ask the retired nun if she's found the key yet. What key? She says sternly. At the church service, Charlie takes money from the collection, but Brian tells him off, so he puts it back. Sorry, force of habit. The train follows Case, who's looking for the money. The retired nun says there's a phone call from a woman who says they can't get them on the seat on the plane to Brazil today. Charlie says that they're going to Brazil to be missionaries. A man shows up saying he believes they're stolen money in the convent. He's the auditor. In Sister Liz's office, he says he's audited the accounts and there's £50,000 missing from the rehab clinic. Sister Liz knows all about it. It's Sister Mary. She lost the 50k on the horses. 
sister Liz reveals this to the auditor and that's next year's budget gone. She can't send her to prison because she's repentant. She begs the auditor for help. He tells her she needs a miracle. Brian and Charlie escape to find Faith. They get changed in a taxi and they go to Faith's flat. Nice wet, wet, wet posters on the wall. <laughs> I didn't notice that. Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. Because they get there, the henchmen are here. They need to escape from the window, which is very high up. They shimmy down the drain pipe, which comes away, and they dangle in midair and then jump onto some homeless people. Two things. One, I was quite happy to finally see a proper stunt. Yeah. In wide, done properly with real people. It's obviously not them, but with real people flailing on a on a bending drain pipe. Mm. But also, correct me if I'm wrong on this, isn't that just a rip-off of something from The Lady Killers? Yeah. Does that happen in The Lady Killers, at the end of The Lady Killers? It happens at the end of The Lady Killers where it's um, Herbert Lom is on this ladder yeah. and he goes backwards and then he goes into the, the train. Oh, it's a ladder, not a drain pipe. Yeah. yeah. It's an obvious nod to that though, right, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, yeah, Alec Guinness kicks in, because they're, they're fighting at the end of the film, and then he kicks Herbert Lom, who goes into the, yeah. And then mm-hmm. the the train signal hits Alec Guinness on the head, and he gets knocked as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, love that film. They make it back to the convent, but the triads ambush them, so they steal a taxi. They get away from the triads and jump over the wall of the convent and sneak back in. They sneak into Sister Mary's room, um, who's asleep after drinking a bottle of whiskey and reading a book on betting for profit. Charlie gets stuck in the window but manages to free himself. Oh, this is a bit I fucking hated. Charlie manages to free himself, but they wake up Sister Mary and she shouts rape and for help. It's just her running through going, rape, men, rape, rape, God, I, don't, men. I don't even, I don't even remember her saying that, God. Murder, murder, yeah. rape. Brian and Charlie try to blend in. Sister Liz asks her if she's sure that she saw two men. And I say, I have written at this point, I wasn't expecting Sister Liz's hair to look like that. I wasn't. Because <laughs> she's quite blonde, isn't she? And she's got quite a kind of, almost, almost a kind of like new wave haircut. Yeah. Yeah, she looks a bit sort of 80s kind of punk kind of yeah, yeah. new wave, doesn't she? Not what I was thinking. Because it looks darker when she's wearing the headdress mm. brian does a drinking motion behind sister mary to sister liz back in their cell or bedroom charlie thinks that god is trying to tell them something and that he's going to get them out of this alive brian and charlie try to sneak off when the birthday girl appears and says that she's come to get them for her party yeah because that's it you wouldn't be having enough fun at your party anyway oh i must remember to invite those two nuns i've only just met who are obviously men. <laughs> yeah, imagine you're having your 18th birthday party and it's not going as well as you thought it would, so you invite two nuns along. Yeah, exactly. Okay, let's uh, let's invite a formerly famous comedian to come to our party who's old enough to be our dad. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that guy from the comic strip. Cracker. <laughs> so they serve them booze and says that and she says that she and her mates are quite anti nun, but you two are different. Absolutely no sense this scene. If you're anti nun, <laughs> why are you inviting two fucking nuns? Charlie Dunn. In a convent. Yeah, in a convent. Why are they in a fucking convent anyway? I don't Rob, I don't understand it. 
I'm going to be honest with you. I don't understand it. Why did I wrote at this point as well as the students explained some plots to Brian. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I put the birthday girl recaps Faith's part in the film and no one believes it. Yeah. yeah. Charlie dances with a girl. No one believes it because she rang the mother superior asking to speak to a man called Brian. Everyone laughs, apart from the audience. Brian and Charlie go to the hospital to check on Firth. Her dad and an uncle are there who look like yobs. <laughs> yeah, double hard bastards, aren't they? I, I wrote Faith's father looks a bit scary. Yeah. They know all about her being involved with this gangster called Brian, and they're not happy. Brian's acting as the nun and talks to Faith. She's not got her glasses on. I put, fuck's sake. Is she the clinic? Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, I made a reference to our last. Well, she's film. got to not have her glasses on again for because otherwise this bit isn't going to work. Yeah, yeah. I put is. Uh, I think she's a clinical moron, Alison in the Inbetweeners movie we talked about. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Again, I just fucking hate this plot contrivance that she has to not have her glasses on to not realise, but then no one else in the fucking film also doesn't realise that these two are a couple of geezers wearing nuns' outfits. So mm. it doesn't make any fucking sense. Because no one questions <laughs> it. Yeah. So this is a plot <laughs> contrivance that she has to have her glasses off. It's constantly nobody questioning it when it's as plain as the nose on your face, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Oh, it's that comedian who used to be good. <laughs> <laughs> There's a line here where somebody says, who cares as well. I can't remember what the context is. I've just written who cares in speech marks and I've written in huge capital letters. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> she says that she's in love with Brian, but he doesn't care about her. And she wishes oh, that's that, it. yeah, that'll be where it's from. Yeah. And that she wishes, and that she wishes she was dead and starts to cry. How has she known him for? Fucking hell. Yeah. Brian wants to take her with them, but can't because the triads are here posing as cleaners with knives. Yeah, they're just like pretending to clean with uh, with knives. <laughs> get your knives yeah. out. Charlie says they've only got two tickets, and tomorrow they need to get up early, get the money and go. The next day, Sister Mary bumps into Brian, leaving the toilet. When she goes in, the seat has been left up, much to her confusion. She catches Charlie with men's shaving gear. She realizes that she... that. She realizes that he's a man and starts to scream. They drag, they drag her into the room and Charlie pulls a gun out on her. They tie her up and gag her. They run to where the money is being kept. Charlie grabs an axe to break the door open. They grab the case and the money spills out onto the floor just as Sister Liz and the other nuns arrive. Busted! She asks them to explain. So they do as themselves. They've stolen the money that's already been stolen. So they're the good guys, honest. Mary appears with a gun, it's Charlie's, and it's not loaded. Sister Liz is ready to call the cops. Brian and Charlie repent and want forgiveness. The only way they'll get that is by handing the money over. Charlie says if they go to jail, they'll be dead men. Brian wants to get married to the girl he loves. Sister Liz isn't sure. Brian says it's every nun for themselves, and they make a run for it. What a fucking shit line. Every nun for yeah. themselves. And then, guess what gets played again for a third time? The Chase by Yellow. <laughs> Jesus. I put the GTA some guy in a pickup truck whilst one of Case's goons watches. He realises it's the boys and gives chase. The nuns get into a mini metro um, and they're in hot pursuit. So now we have wacky races on the streets of London. Well, they're, specifically they're in uh, Hammersmith and Chiswick here because they go, they're near the 
uh, Tizic flyover by the Hogarth roundabout. The goons ring Case and tell him what's happening. He gives chase as well, also followed by the triads. uh, Charlie and Brian say that they're going to the airport, not the hospital, but they make it to the hospital after all. Brian gives Faith her glasses and she finally fucking recognizes him. Charlie. She does a double take, doesn't she? She might. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I, I think you spotted that better than me, Rob. I, yeah. Charlie distracts the triads, posing as a cleaner and hits them over the head with a bedpan, which makes a gong sound racist. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> yeah. Faith slaps Brian because she thought he was married, then slaps him again for lying, then they kiss. Classic slapping scene. The henchmen show up and also the nuns. Brian tells her that he was the priest that she confessed to and the nun that she spoke to last night, so she hits him again. Case shows up and joins the goons who go looking around the hospital. The police are also here looking for Faith. Charlie says they need to leave. Check-in is in 30 minutes. Brian is going to stay and get whatever is coming to him. He asks Faith if she'll wait for him. She says, no, I'm coming with you. And as they're escaping, they drop a suitcase and don't realize. Yeah, and I wrote, how have they not realized dropping that bag? Yeah. Uh, I also found the the reaction shots to their kiss a bit (laughs) kind of out of place, because surely everyone should just be going, oh. She's old enough to be your fucking daughter. Yeah. You horrible prick. (laughs) Case catches them and tells them to stop or he'll shoot and then make out like he's going to shoot them when the door flings open, knocking him out, and the cardiac arrest team bursts through. The police appear, and he's arrested. The two nuns, Sister Liz and Sister Mary, drop, find the dropped case. Brian, Charlie, and Faith realise they've dropped the case, but decide it's best to leave it behind. As they leave the hospital, the receptionist says the police are looking for them, so they turn back. At a dead end, they decide to dress up as nurses. Uh, yeah, I put this point. They look much more convincingly like women dressed as nurses than they ever did as nuns. Yeah, because they're actually made up, aren't they? I think yeah. actually, it looks like there's some effort that's gone into it mm. in this bit. Um, yeah, but while they're on the run from someone, yeah, they've gone to a lot of effort to put on some makeup properly. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't make any sense, does it? So yeah, they bump into Faith's uncle and tell him that Case's henchman who's behind them is Brian, so he headbutts him in the groin. The nurses have been tied up and dressed in the nun's clothing. They escape, and the police stop them. The cop pulls out a gun and tells the other police officer to strip-search them. But we're not allowed to search women. They're not women. He goes over, says to take them off, and he pulls on the clothing, and the nurse has sexy stockings and suspenders on. This needed some qualification, didn't it? Because this is the first time we're seeing these characters. Should they not have turned up earlier on? They're meant to be like strippograms, are they? I guess. I don't know. I thought they were proper nurses. Or are they just meant to be nurses? I think they're just meant to be nurses and she's just wearing... Why the fuck are they wearing lingerie? Yeah. (laughs) Because it wouldn't be a a joke, would it? Otherwise. (sighs) So crap. I genuinely thought that that it was meant to be some kind of misunderstanding that some that some strippers had turned up. No, and they've taken it. I think they're just meant to be nurses who work at the hospital, who at the same time wear sexy lingerie as well. Yeah, well, that just makes that bit even more offensive, then, doesn't it? Yeah, stop off at Victoria's Secret, get yourself some lingerie, Uh, go to work. Because 
Um, nurses are all really horny, aren't they, when they're fucking wiping old men's asses? <laughs> That's what these films have taught us, Rob. That's exactly what it is. Speaking of wiping old men's asses, Eric Idle. <laughs> Um, yeah, so he takes, yeah, and then, so he takes this nurse's clothing off and she's got stockings and suspenders. A man on crutches falls over. Classic gag. The boys and Faith steal an ambulance to get away. Back at the convent, the nuns are keeping the money and wiping off their debt from Sister Mary's gambling. They say a prayer for the two sisters who were blokes and thank God for sending them. At the airport, Brian and Charlie try to book a third ticket when a cop approaches and tells the girl behind the desk to look out for anyone booking tickets with the name McManus or Hope. We see a plane take off. Faith is sat on her own with the case next to her. Brian and Charlie are now dressed as air hostesses and they offer her champagne or caviar. The end. All right, glad it's over. Most offensive since Lesbian Vampire Killers. And this this is what I think it looks like, right? Do you remember, and this is an obscure reference, did you ever watch The Krypton Factor? No, I, I loved it as a kid. So there was there was a there was a round in the Krypton Factor. So obviously the Krypton Factor had its assault course and had its general knowledge bit and had its um, mind game bit, mm. but it also had like like a comprehension round where the contestants had to watch like a like a a, f- a five minute short film that had been made especially for uh, the Krypton Factor. Mm. Um, and it was usually, I mean, there's some, it usually had like people like Tony Slattery in it. I think it was one of um, Steve Coogan's early roles was on a, on a Krypton Factor VT insert. Oh, okay. But basically, this film looks like a Krypton Factor VT insert. <laughs> is, is what I think. The way it's shot, the way it's lit, it's kind of shoddiness. But yeah, that's that's what it reminded me of. Mm. Um, oh, God. Like, I honestly, I, I don't think we'd we'd see something that could cha- that could seriously challenge, well, this series anyway, that could seriously challenge lesbian vampire killers for the bottom spot. No, and obviously we'll get to that in just a moment. But no. oh Christ, it was it was shit, and it wasn't just shit; it was offensive in a lot of ways. You know, there was racist triad depictions, uh, offensive to the trans community, uh, offensive to anyone who is a fan of cinema yes offensive to the memory of rutland weekend television and um and monty python yeah and what a fucking waste of robbie coltrane yeah what a waste of not only a great comedy actor but a great actor i you know obviously still fairly early days in his career at this point Mm. but i just felt sorry for him the whole way through really He's given given nothing. Yeah, just nothing to do. Like I thought when before I went into this film, I thought this film was going to be a kind of British planes, trains, and automobiles of these two guys on the run, like across country maybe, or having to find different ways of getting away from these people. I didn't think it was going to be set just on one street in a. <laughs> You know, in a in a convent, I thought it was going to be a bit cannonball run. You know, you got D. Might and Sammy Davis Jr. as a, as a priest in cannonball mm-hmm. run. I thought it was going to be a little bit like that. That you know, like a kind of caper movie. Yeah. You know, I think something we talked about as well was some like it hot. Yeah, I mean, I was t- one of our recent guests, Tom Salinsky. I was telling him about 
that we were doing this film and that neither of us enjoyed it. And he said, I, I haven't seen it. Why would you when some like it hot exists? Mm. And yeah, he's right. It's an elephant in the, an elephant in the room while watching that film. I, I would say the legacy of this film, as you've touched on a little bit, Guy, it wasn't good for Handmaid, despite box office success of Nuns on the Run, and it was a box office success. Mm. Handmaid Seats Operations in 91, as you said, was bought out by Paragon a year later and still traded under that name until the late 90s, with uh, Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels being its its biggest hit. So I, I guess, you know, a legacy for... Well, the legacy for Handmaid was that it stopped being Handmaid. Yes. Because of this shite. <laughs> Um, although, well, no, not because of this show, because we like we say it was a success. Yeah. Inexplicably. Like even for a 1990 audience, I'm, I'm surprised. It was massive. This film was massive, wasn't it really? Well, mm. for in, certainly in Britain, but like it, it crossed over into America, but it's just not, it's just not funny. Yeah. There's no just, um, scale to anything. Like you said, mm. like we said, it's trying to invoke some like it hot. I remember when I finished it, I was like, I just rather watch some like it hot than this. Why have I watched this for an hour and a half? Could watch Tony Curtis, Marilyn Monroe, and Jack Lemmon. Well, the, the other film that's an elephant in the room for this, uh, and you know, I, I can't believe I'm holding this film up as some like amazing piece of entertainment, but a film that came out around the same time, maybe a couple of years later, is Sister Act, mm. which is a big elephant in the room here because it's a much better execution of a similar idea, nowhere near as offensive, obviously. Mm. Um, and you know, Sister Act went on to have a went on to have a sequel, Sister Act Two: Back in the Habit, and also West End Broadway adaptations. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I was just to just, just say generally the legacy is well, it's it, it's Eric Idle doing his level best to ruin his own legacy. <laughs> I would say, or, or Jonathan Lynn is. Let's rank it, shall we? Yeah. Now, I think well, we're, we're both on the on the same page with how much we dislike. No, hate. I would say hate this film. Yeah, I, I yeah. yeah, I'd agree. But the bit. So the big question is, does it dislodge lesbian vampire killers at the bottom? But lesbian vampire killers, we thought we were going to hate, and we did hate it. Mm. This. Well, I don't know about you. I I thought I was going to find some enjoyment here. Me too. And it was a crushing disappointment. Uh, but does that mean it's worse than lesbian vampire killers? I don't know. I'm struggling. I'm struggling with this one because it's it's certainly as offensive as lesbian vampire killers. Yeah, I think there might be just a, a couple, a couple of tiny bits of writing flourishes just that that tip it over. The, because lesbian vampire killers has no redeeming dialogue whatsoever. No. This has maybe two lines that are decent. Yeah. It's got a couple of bits, small bits that I don't know. I think it's it's such a difficult one because this is one of those where I thought I thought this will be fine. This will be a good three out of five. Little caper. It'll be a bit of a laugh. I like Eric Idle. I like Robbie Coltrane. It's going to be fine. And it was so bad and just boring, poorly made, offensive. Not even anything. Not even anything you can laugh at in a kind of well, that's a bit shit. But it's sort of in a funny way just mm-hmm. bad just boring is it worse than lesbian vampire killers 
probably not. I, 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 I think I think it goes second bot. I mean, it's, yeah. it's definitely worse than Man About the House. Yes, definitely. There are. I laughed at least two times in Man About the House. I think it's close to being as bad, but I don't think we can say that Nuns on the Run is worse than Lesbian Vampire Killers. No, it's not. So let's stick it second bottom. And as this is episode eight, that makes it seventh. Wow. So that means we just need to do our quiz then, Rob. I've forgotten even who you're giving me questions about, so this doesn't bode well, or what subject you're giving me questions about. I've got questions on Jonathan Lynn for you. Are, are yours on Robbie Coltrane for Yeah, me? Robbie Coltrane for you. Okay. Let's just say the scores at the moment are 17-16 to me. So you closed the gap from two to one last time round mm. during the in-betweeners. So let's see if you can close it again or even overtake me. Okay, let's go for As it. As we we're very close to, uh, to crowning a quiz winner. Jonathan Lynn. With whom did Jonathan Lynn write all 22 episodes of Yes Minister? Anthony J. Correct. Which was the second Bond film that Robbie Coltrane appeared in? The World Is Not Enough. It was. Who played Professor Plum in the Jonathan Lynn-directed Clue? In 1985. Well, I've not seen it, and you gave me one person who was in it. Tim Curry? No, it was Christopher Lloyd. Oh, I wouldn't have got that. Coltrane was one of the staples of The Comet Strip Presents, appearing in 17 episodes. But which was his first? Five Game Madden Dorset. It was. That's two to you, sir. At which Cambridge College did Jonathan Lynn study law? Uh, all I got is that he was at the Cambridge Union. That's all I saw. It was Pembroke. Ah, uh, I mean, I've heard of it, but I wouldn't have. Yeah, I wouldn't have got it. What is Robbie Coltrane's real name? Now, again, this is something that I would have read on his Wikipedia page a week ago, and I can't remember. I don't even want to guess because it would be unfair to a dead man. So <laughs> I'm going to say I don't know. Anthony McMillan. Uh, in which sitcom did Jonathan Lynn have a recurring bit part as a window cleaner? And it is a sitcom that we've talked about at reasonable length. Um, are you being served? The Good Life. Coltrane appeared in the music video for which Kate Bush song? Babushka. No, Deeper Understanding from 2011. Oh, look at that gosh. Yeah. Wow. That, I found that a surprise. Question five for you to draw level. Jonathan Lynn appeared on an episode of The Ed Sullivan Show in 1964 with The Cambridge Circus. Name one other act, not a member of The Cambridge Circus, to feature on that episode. So, The Rolling Stones. No, not The Rolling Stones. The Animals oh. were on that episode, as was John Biner, Toti Fields, Antonio Gardez, Van Johnson, Jackie Mason, Rita Pavoni, Joan Sutherland, and the Ray Block Orchestra. Okay, so I can extend my lead here with your question five. You can. So, in the show, Coltrane's Planes and Automobiles, he single-handedly removed the engine from a Trabant car in how many minutes? <laughs> right well i thought mine was hard this is much harder um, <laughs> it's just a number rob you can guess a number removed an engine of a trabant car in for it to be noteworthy it's got to be quick right seven minutes 
23. Ah, 23. Okay, well, 2-1 to me, which makes it 19-17 to me. So I've regained my two-point advantage with three episodes left, including next episodes, when we are going to talk about people just do nothing. Big in Japan. Yeah. So it's another film uh, that is an adaptation of a TV show, a direct adaptation. And we're going to have a guest again. And our guest will be Daisy Edwards, presenter of W-Rated Podcast, which I urge everyone to listen to. Uh, so Daisy and her co-host Claire delve into the bottom 100 films on the IMDb list. So they are very much used to watching and reviewing shite films. They probably would have enjoyed <laughs> this episode. <laughs> you looking forward to episode nine, Guy? Yeah, very much so. I am a fan of People Just Do Nothing. And uh, yeah, I've seen the film before and enjoyed it. So it'd be good to go back to that and see if I'm still enjoying it on a rewatch. And looking forward to it. So until then, thanks, Guy, and uh, we'll see you next time. Yeah, cheers, Rob. See you then. Thank you for listening to Britcom Goes to the Movies with Guy Walker and Rob Heath. Thanks to Mark Phillips for the podcast artwork. You can get in touch with us by emailing BritcomGoes at gmail.com or you can find us on Instagram and Twitter as at BritcomGoes. And don't forget to check out the Britcom Goes to the Movies playlist on Spotify and Amazon Music. Please like, subscribe and review so that others can find the podcast and we'll see you on the next episode.